This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. This episode features dramatizations and discussions of rape, murder, and violence against women. We'd like to advise an extra warning for sensitive content. If you or someone you know has been assaulted, you can call 800-656-HOPE to speak with a trained counselor 24-7. Listener discretion is advised, especially for those under 13. Additionally, please note that there are many variations on the following ancient story. Our version incorporates elements from each to give you the most dramatic retelling possible. Nereus swung his blade with abandon, cutting a path through the dense foliage. His arms already ached with exhaustion from the long, desperate swim to shore. But he had to keep going if he wanted to find shelter and fresh water before nightfall. He wondered if any of the other crew members had survived the night. The storm had come out of nowhere, driving the ship straight into the rocks that surrounded the island. It was thanks to either dumb luck or the grace of the gods that the tides had swept Nereus onto the beach and not out to sea. Nereus grunted in annoyance as his sword caught on something solid. He pushed aside the branch and found himself face to face with a soldier. Nereus cried out in alarm and stumbled back, but the soldier didn't move. It stood there, spear arm raised mid-throw, mouth curled into a frozen yell. It was just a statue, an impressively lifelike one, but a man made of stone nonetheless. Nereus felt suddenly cowardly. His shipmates would have howled with laughter if they'd been here. But in his defense, it wasn't every day one found a statue in the middle of the jungle. Moments later, Nereus passed a second statue of a soldier. This one was wearing Trojan armor. It was followed by the statue of an elderly fisherman carrying a net full of fish, and then one of a young shepherd boy, and then three more warriors from Athens, all of the statues were similarly well-crafted, and their expressions were all fixed in the most peculiar expressions of horror. He was just starting to wonder who the master craftsman was when he heard the waterfall. Nereus raced toward the source, ignoring the branches that whipped his arms and face, the statues grew more numerous as the trees began to thin. At last, he emerged onto the bank. Nereus stopped short, breath catching in his throat. Straight ahead of him, at the center of the clear pool, was a woman. Water spilled over her neck and bare back, sparkling in the bright sunlight. 
Her very skin shimmered like polished gold. Her hair cascaded to her shoulders in dark curls. Her hair was moving, Nereus realized with a start. Those weren't curls. They were snakes. Welcome to Mythical Monsters, a ParCast original. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Every week, we dive into history's most legendary monsters. In telling the stories of their origins, we hope to shed light on some truths hidden behind the creations of these beasts. Where they come from, what they symbolize, and how they expose some of humanity's greatest fears. You can find episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Mythical Monsters for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythical Monsters in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Today, we're discussing Medusa, one of the most iconic monsters from Greek mythology. One of the three Gorgon sisters, Medusa is best known for her venomous snake hair and for her ability to turn mortals to stone with a single glance. Almost 3,000 years after she adorned the breastplates of Greek warriors and stalked the nightmares of Athenian children, Medusa is as recognizable as ever. The image of her head, known independently as the Gorgonian, can be seen today in the logo of the Versace fashion brand and on the Sicilian flag. She's appeared in countless great works of art and in feature films, and has served as a symbol of incarnate wrath for French revolutionaries and second-wave feminists. But archaeological records reveal that Medusa's image was even more ubiquitous in the ancient world. Her face adorned armor and temples, and was used in virtually every Greek art form, from pottery to jewelry to metalwork. She was even the subject of an ancient Greek gag gift. Her face was painted onto the bottom of cups so that it would appear suddenly and startle the drinker. But as infamous as Medusa is, her origins have largely been forgotten. Today, few remember the tale of how she came to wear her iconic serpentine hair. For long before she was a gorgon, Medusa was a young maiden. Medusa followed the procession through the city square, grinning from ear to ear. The crowd pressed in on all sides, eager for a sight of the golden robes draped over the cart directly ahead of her. She and another young priestess had spent the last year weaving those robes, preparing them for today, when they would finally clothe the statue of Athena. The Panathenea had always been Medusa's favorite holiday. As a child, she had loved watching the parade from her father's shoulders, surrounded by the teeming crowds. It had only become more special as she grew older, and visits to the city center became rarer. Even as a priestess, she was meant to spend most of her time at her home. Trips to the city center and the temple were reserved for holidays like today. But now here she was, in the center of it all, no longer a spectator, but a party to the festivities. She laughed and tossed her hair, her long golden curls sparkling in the sunlight. It happened faster than she could process. A man stepped out of the crowd and bumped against her, his hand slithering up her body to cup her breast. Medusa jerked away and whirled around, eyes flashing with fury, but he had already disappeared back into the crowd. She hadn't even seen his face. 
The woman behind Medusa prodded her in the ribs. She was slowing the parade. With a last look around, she turned and started forward again. She stared at the ground as she walked. Her stomach hurt like it was tied in a knot. She felt angry, humiliated, exposed and claustrophobic at the same time. When she looked up again, the crowd seemed to have changed. An older man up ahead was leering at her. She hadn't passed him yet. He couldn't be the same man, could he? Medusa's eyes fixed on Athena's temple at the top of the hill. If she could just get there, she would be safe from the roving eyes and groping hands. The ceremony took twice as long as she remembered, but eventually the last commoner filed out of the temple. The other priestesses were gone now too, probably preparing the ox for tonight's sacrifice. They would notice Medusa's absence, but she didn't care. Medusa knelt before the statue of Athena, staring up at the towering goddess. She looked magnificent in her freshly woven robes, with her shield in one hand and helm balanced precariously on her stern brow. How Medusa longed to be like the wise goddess, the virginal queen of art and war. She wanted to inspire men to bravery and honor, not to lascivious thoughts. All her life, she'd been hounded by unwanted suitors. When she asked to be left alone, they laughed at her, demanding to know why she wore her hair in those arresting curls if she didn't want the attention. Her eyes fell on the knife lying on the altar, its blade already sharpened in anticipation of tonight. She seized it with one hand and selected a length of hair with the other, pulling it tight. If shedding these curls was what it took to be left alone, she would do it. A low voice rumbled in Medusa's ear. Why would you ruin your best feature, my child? Medusa hadn't heard the man enter, and when she spun to face him, she knew why. A tangled gray beard fell like a net of sea kelp around his rippling shoulders. His blue eyes crackled with the energy of an ocean storm. Medusa whispered his name, Poseidon. The god of the sea spoke again, his voice like breaking waves. Long have I gazed upon these precious curls. It would please me if you would keep them. She let him take the knife, and his hand closed around her wrist. Alarmed, Medusa looked into Poseidon's eyes. His irises churned with desire. She protested. She cried for help. She fought. But his was the strength of the ocean. As he held her to the marble floor, she stared up at the statue of Athena and begged the goddess to put an end to this horror. Medusa lay on the stone floor a long time after the sea god had departed. When she heard someone approaching, she feared that he had returned. It was the high priestess. When Medusa saw her, she fell at her feet, tears streaming down her face, and confessed all that had happened. The high priestess knelt beside her, taking the girl's bruised cheek in her hands. Her expression hardened. She said, You have desecrated the Virgin Athena's temple. You may never step foot here again. Pray the goddess does not punish you further. Before the girl could protest, she was being lifted, body dragged across the stone floor, and finally hurled through the entryway. The men loitering around the entrance laughed as her body tumbled down the temple steps. It hurt to move, but the shame hurt even more. She pushed herself up and ran. 
Blood pounded in her ears, louder than the laughter, but not loud enough to dispel the memory of Poseidon's voice in her ear, or his stinking breath on her face. Her stomach boiled with rage. There was no escaping the city center on the way down from the temple. The streets were still alive with people celebrating, mostly men now. Their eyes fell on her as she passed, lingering on her torn clothes. What she would give to never feel those eyes again. A man stood directly in her path, staring and grinning. She brushed past him, too close. His skin felt hard and rough, like stone. Up ahead, another man paused in the street, looked at her, then did not move. She looked around as she ran. She saw expressions turn from confusion to horror and then go still. A dog froze mid-leap and crashed to the earth with a heavy thud. Everyone she passed was turning to stone. And then she heard it, an awful hissing, so close she couldn't believe she hadn't noticed it before. Some great serpentine creature was bearing down on her, petrifying everything in its path. Medusa flew down the street, ignoring the startled cries as dozens more froze in their tracks. The serpent was almost on top of her. She could feel its cold tongue licking the back of her neck. Medusa's house came into view. She raced up the path, weaving between three stone-faced children who had been frozen mid-game. She barreled through the door and slammed it behind her. But the hissing didn't go away. In fact, it was louder than before. Medusa roared in desperate frustration. A servant heard her and stepped out into the hall. He would never move again. Medusa fled into the courtyard, desperate to escape the hissing sounds that now seemed to be coming from inside her skull. She saw the fish pond at the center of the yard and ran toward it. When she reached the water's edge, she looked down at her reflection and screamed. As her pained cries rang out across the city, Medusa's neighbors stepped from their homes to discover the trail of petrified bodies she had left behind. No one came to the aid of the girl kneeling in the courtyard. Whatever else she might have been, she was now a monster. Coming up, Medusa finds camaraderie amongst her fellow monsters. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. Long before she was a gorgon, Medusa was a young maiden renowned for her beautiful hair. When she caught the eye of the god Poseidon, he followed her to Athena's temple and raped her. Poseidon returned to the sea, but Medusa's life would never be the same. Some say Athena cursed her for desecrating her altar. Others that Medusa's own anger transformed her body just as it had poisoned her mind. Either way, as she left the temple that day, Medusa became a monster. One of the most recognizable characters in Greek art and literature, Medusa is also one of the most multifaceted. The earliest depictions of Medusa, going as far back as the 7th century BCE, show her as a humanoid monster with a mixture of male and female characteristics. 
a wide face, bulging cheeks, a fat, lolling tongue, the tusks of a boar, long hair, and a beard. Writers from this period describe her and her sisters as wearing serpents tied around their waists, or as having wings and bronze claws. During the 5th century BCE, depictions of Medusa became increasingly humanized and feminine, eventually solidifying into the serpent-haired woman we know today. But while Medusa had become more pleasing to the eye, she was still as deadly as ever, possessing the power to turn anyone who met her gaze to stone. This dichotomy was described by Kiki Karaglou, associate curator of the Met's Department of Greek and Roman Art. She writes, Medusa, in effect, became the archetypal femme fatale, a conflation of femininity, erotic desire, violence, and death. Beauty, like monstrosity, enthralls, and female beauty in particular was perceived, and to a certain extent is still perceived, to be both enchanting and dangerous, or even fatal. But Medusa's beauty was not just dangerous for those who gazed into her eyes. The most complete version of Medusa's origin comes from the Roman poet Ovid's Metamorphoses, writing in the first century CE. Here, he introduces the claim that Medusa was raped by Poseidon and subsequently transformed into a monster by Athena as punishment for desecrating her temple. There's no suggestion from either Ovid or any of the characters in the myth that Athena's decision to punish the victim in this instance was unjust or unexpected. The implications are even more profound considering that Athena was one of the most respected members of the Greek pantheon. Moreover, the ancient Greek myths were far from mere bedtime stories for their audience, but were looked at as quasi-historical retellings of a shared past. Medusa's story, therefore, serves as a window into ancient Greek culture and particularly into its attitudes toward women and sexual violence. Greek society was organized in a fiercely patriarchal system that allowed women no political rights and saw them controlled by men at every stage of their lives. The one exception to this rule was in religious life. Priestesses to the Greek gods and goddesses wielded a degree of respect and power unheard of for most ancient Greek women. They were paid and allowed to own property, as a priestess of the cult of Athena, Medusa would have been a member of a select sisterhood, making her separation from society even more painful. But eventually, Medusa would find a new sisterhood. Medusa soared over the crashing waves, scanning the horizon for any sign of land where she could rest, Weeks had gone by since she had fled the world of men, and her wings were beyond tired. She had passed a few islands already, but they were all populated, so she decided to keep going. Better to run out of steam and crash into the ocean than to decimate another village. As she sunk lower in the sky, her eyes occasionally drifted to the surface of the water, she had not yet grown used to the sight of her own reflection. Enormous, feathered wings, like those of an eagle, sprouted from her shoulder blades. Her skin shimmered with rigid scales. But strangest of all was her hair. Her golden curls were long gone, replaced by a mass of serpents. They slithered over one another, flicking their forked tongues and hissing incessantly. The only thing that hadn't changed was her face. It looked just as she always had. Not that it mattered. Anyone who looked at her face would instantly turn to stone. The sound of crying gulls brought Medusa's attention back to the task at hand. She spotted birds up ahead, hovering over a tiny island, if you could call it that, 
It was barely more than a few craggy rocks poking up out of the ocean. But the strangest thing was what lay beyond the island. The sky suddenly transitioned from daylight to darkness. It was like looking at a distant storm, except there wasn't a cloud in the sky. Medusa stared in awe as she realized what it was. She had reached the edge of night. All the better. Humans would have no reason to live in such a desolate place. With any luck, the island would not be inhabited. As she touched down on the rocks, a strange cry rang out from one of the caves on the island's western edge. A moment later, two monstrous creatures came tearing out of the darkness, hissing and gnashing their teeth as they raced toward her. Medusa stood her ground. She was too exhausted to fly, and she knew that these creatures would turn to stone the moment they were close enough. Except then, a few moments passed, and she could see the whites of their eyes. They were still coming. Medusa took a step backward, stretching her wings, but the creatures were almost on top of her, and they had wings too. She could now see that they were both female, and at least somewhat human in appearance. One was not unlike Medusa. Her skin was slick and gray, and her hair seemed to move of its own accord. But where Medusa had snakes, this creature had the groping tentacles of a squid. The second creature was more horrifying still. She had the lower body of an enormous serpent and the torso of a woman. She had no hair at all, but the wide, fleshy hood of a cobra. The monsters circled Medusa, eyeing her wings and snaky hair. She could feel them sizing her up, deciding just how much of a fight she would put up. She flexed her claws and glared with all the ferocity she could muster, praying that they could not see how exhausted she was. In solidarity, her snakes coiled defensively and hissed at the monsters. The cobra woman's head was cocked at an odd angle. Her forked tongue flicked and her hood flared, and Medusa realized that she was listening to her snakes. When the cobra woman began to hiss back, Medusa discovered that she could understand her. The cobra woman's name was Stheno, and her sister was Uriali. They were the Gorgons, the terrible sisters, children of the primordial gods Phorsis and Ceto. She demanded to know what Medusa was and why she had come to their island at the edge of night. Medusa opened her mouth to respond, but as her lips formed the first word, the tentacle woman snarled furiously. Evidently, the terrible sisters were not fans of human speech. Certain that she was moments from being torn limb from limb, Medusa shut her eyes. She pushed her thoughts to the edge of her mind and felt her serpents writhe. I am Medusa. The words came not from her own mouth, but from the dozens of forked tongues curling on her scalp. The Gorgons seemed to be listening, so Medusa continued. She told them that she had come from somewhere far away, that she had grown tired of killing men every day, and that she had wished for peace. So she had come here. The Gorgons eyed her warily for a long moment. Finally, the Cobra Woman hissed back. This island does not have much food, but what you catch is yours to keep. With that, Steno turned and stomped back in the direction of her cave. Uriali stared at Medusa for another moment before slithering after her sister. Medusa breathed a sigh of relief. 
Only now did she realize that this had been her first conversation with another living soul since leaving the Temple of Athena. She was surprised by how comforting it felt to hear another voice, even if that voice wasn't human. Medusa claimed a cave on the far end of the beach, opposite from the two Gorgons. Time on the island passed slowly. She lived off of fish, crustaceans, and the occasional seagull, though she had to be careful not to look them in the eye until they were dead. It was impossible not to run into the Gorgons every now and again, but they rarely spoke to her. That was until the storm hit. Medusa was trying to sleep on the cold rock floor of her cave when her snakes whispered in her ear, someone is coming. A bolt of lightning flashed in the distance, illuminating the shapes of Stheno and Euryale standing in the entrance to the cave. Medusa leapt to her feet, snakes arched. Euryale snarled, ready for a fight, but her sister raised an arm to stop her. In a calm hiss, Steno explained that their own cave had flooded. They wondered if Medusa would share hers for just one night. Medusa eyed the sisters warily. There was a decent chance that they were planning to wait until she was asleep to bash her brains in with a rock. Of course, if she said no, they would probably just kill her and take the cave anyway. Medusa nodded. The Gorgons hurried inside. Medusa rekindled the fire that had gone out. Then, thinking that it would be wise not to let her guests go hungry, she offered them each a fish head. They ate in silence while the wind howled and the storm raged outside. Medusa woke to the sound of screaming. Steno was in the entryway of the cave, calling for Medusa to come join the fun. A ship had wrecked on the island during the night, and there were more than enough sailors to go around. Medusa didn't follow. She cowered at the back of the cave and waited until the screaming stopped. Steno and Euryale returned a few hours later, their mouths smeared with blood. Medusa was grateful that they did not ask why she had refused to join in the hunt. The sisters' cave was still flooded, so they stayed there again, laughing and talking through the night. Less than a month passed before a second ship crashed on the rocks surrounding the island. The sisters had still not returned to their own cave, and once again urged Medusa to join them in hunting down the beached sailors. She told them she was feeling ill. When a third ship crashed less than a week later, Medusa realized that it was not an accident that the terrible sisters had chosen this island as their home. And this time, they demanded to know why Medusa always stayed behind. So she told them. She confessed that she was human, or at least she had been once. That demanded further explanation. The more she talked, the harder it became to stop. She told them about her last day as a priestess and about Poseidon. She hadn't wanted to remember his stinking breath or the feel of his weight, but as the words spilled out of her, she felt no shame. It felt good to tell someone what had happened, even if they could do no more than she, even if they would kill her for being human. As she neared the end of her story, Medusa heard her voice crack. She was horrified to find that she was crying now, but she couldn't stop. She had wanted to be just like the chaste goddess Athena, clever and pure. She wanted to inspire men to great deeds, and now she never would. Without warning, Steno leaned forward to embrace her. Medusa shut her eyes as one of the girl's tentacles wiped a tear from her cheek. 
Perhaps Medusa was a monster, she said, but then so were the gods and all the rest of them. Those men's hearts had already been stone. She had just given them bodies to match. There was a sound from outside. Steno ran to the mouth of the cave and peered out into the darkness. She returned a moment later and told them what she had seen. Another ship had landed on the beach, no doubt looking for its companion. What will it be, sister? Steno offered her hand, and Medusa took it. Uriali unleashed a bellowing howl as the three Gorgons charged into the night, ready to visit their wrath on the unsuspecting men below. Next, Medusa makes enemies of men and gods alike, and pays the ultimate price. Now, back to the story. Medusa was once a fair maiden with curly golden hair, until Poseidon raped her in Athena's temple. Twisted by either the goddess's curse or her own hate, she became a monster. Her once beautiful hair became venomous snakes, and in her gaze, she held the power to turn men to stone. Horrified at what she had become, Medusa fled. She took refuge on the island of Sisthene on the edge of night. There she befriended the immortal Gorgons, Euryale, whose bellowing screams echoed over the waves, and Steno, whose ferocity knew no bounds. They became sisters, visiting their wrath and vengeance on any sailors foolish enough to set foot on their rocky shores. Word of Medusa, most terrible of the Gorgons, spread through the world of men. Rather than keeping them at bay, the stories only drew more to her shore. They came for her, alone and in droves, with spears and swords and chariots, all hoping to find glory by slaying the dreaded Gorgon. Any man who could bring back the head of Medusa would forever be remembered as a hero. Soon, the beaches of Sisthene were littered with their stone bodies. As the years passed, Medusa's once boiling rage became a simmer. One day, while walking through her garden of petrified warriors, she found herself gazing on their stone faces, wishing that they still drew breath. What she would give to hear them speak, to converse for just a moment with another mortal. Medusa loved her sisters fiercely, but they were not like her. They had no understanding of the life she had left behind. No memories of festivals, cooking and cleaning, of wondering what kind of woman she would one day become. They would never grow old, and they would never die. But Medusa would. Each time her snakes shed their skin, she felt a little older, a little further from the world of men, and a little more alone. She hated their incessant hissing and hated what she had become. If only she could be rid of this life once and for all. Medusa's eyes fell upon a stone knife in the belt of a sailor. She seized it impulsively, fingers wrapping around the handle. With the other hand, she reached up and seized a snake from her scalp, stretching it taut. The serpent writhed and hissed in protest as she placed the sharp edge of the knife against its slick skin. The other serpents rallied to its defense, striking repeatedly at her bare hand. Medusa ignored them, wincing in pain as the rock pierced flesh. She dropped the knife and released the snake. She could no more remove it any more than she could cut off one of her own limbs. And even if she could, what would be the point? Would she cut off her wings next? 
or dig out her eyes? Would the world of men want her then? The serpent had retreated into the web of its brothers and sisters, hissing and writhing angrily. At the same moment, she felt something else squirm deep inside her, something foreign, something alive. On some level, she had already known it was there. She'd felt it growing in the pit of her stomach, stealing life and blood from her. Poseidon had found one last way to poison her. She was pregnant with his child. That night, Medusa awoke to her serpent's whispered hissing in her ear. She was about to swat them away when she heard it. Someone was creeping toward her in the darkness. Medusa cracked an eyelid. She could see the still forms of Euryale and Stheno slumbering peacefully beside her. The footsteps crept closer. Her snakes could sense even the faintest vibrations. They hissed incessantly, urging Medusa to get up. She shut her eyes. Let the man slay her, whoever he was. Let her death make him famous. That was what he wanted, no doubt. A conquest. People would remember his name forever. They would sing of his great deeds and think of him as they ran screaming into battle. Medusa smiled to herself. Perhaps in her death, she would, at last, inspire bravery. The child in her stomach kicked suddenly, and the face of Poseidon swam in her mind. The old wrath flared deep within her. What did she care of human bravery? She was Medusa, a Gorgon, a terrible sister, the one who inspired men to tremble in fear, to cower in terror, the one who turned their blood to stone. If this man wanted her dead, let him look her in the face. She rolled over, and their eyes met. The man smiled. He wasn't frozen. It took only an instant for Medusa to register. She was looking into his reflection in a polished bronze shield. She knew that shield. She had seen its likeness every day on the arm of Athena's statue. Her eyes shifted to the man's reflection in the shield. He was barely visible, almost translucent, for on his head was Hades' helm of darkness. On his feet, he wore the winged sandals of Hermes, and in his right hand, he grasped the curved sword of Zeus. So this was how a man killed a monster, with all of Olympus arming him. Medusa laughed as the man swung. Steno heard Medusa's death gasp as her head left her body. She leapt to her feet, screaming for Euryale. The Gorgons lunged for the intruder, gnashing their teeth with unbridled fury. But he was all but invisible in the darkness and already flying above them, Medusa's head cradled in a pouch in his arm. They chased him out of the cave and onto the beach, which was just beginning to glow with the light of the rising sun. They flew over the island, searching the sky for Medusa's killer, but he was already gone. Medusa's most prominent role in ancient Greek mythology comes in the tale of Perseus, where she plays the final villain and monster at the end of a road of trials. Interestingly, Perseus's motive for slaying the Gorgon is always razor thin. The young man is invited to a feast at the home of King Polydictes and is embarrassed to discover he's the only guest who has not brought a gift. 
he boldly pronounces that he intends to bring the king the head of Medusa, the only mortal Gorgon, and sets out to do just that. The gods help prepare him in various ways, offering him magical gifts to assist him in defeating the goddess. According to Ovid, the goddess Athena even goes so far as to guide Perseus's blade right into the sleeping Medusa's neck. But Medusa's story does not end with her death. Two children are said to have climbed out of her decapitated body. One was Pegasus, the winged steed of Bellerophon, and the other was the stout-hearted warrior Chryseor. Both would go on to become heroes in their own right. After Perseus fled the island, Medusa's sister Euryale mourned the fallen Gorgon with her signature baleful cries. Athena heard the mournful tones and sought to replicate them herself by creating the flute. This is the rare anecdote from Greek mythology that shows Medusa as more than just the villain in Perseus's story. By immortalizing Euryale's wail in a musical instrument, Athena acknowledges the tragedy of Medusa. But if she wished to atone for turning Medusa into a monster, that sentiment appears to have been short-lived. When Athena's cheeks filled with air as she played the flute, she was embarrassed to discover that she not only sounded like the Gorgon, but looked like her. She threw it down to earth, where it was later recovered by the satyr Marcius. But more important than any of these tales are the stories of Medusa's head. Known as the Gorgonian, Medusa's head was arguably more significant to the ancient Greeks than the Gorgon herself. While Medusa was dead, her head maintained the power to petrify anyone who looked into its eyes. Perseus used this power to defeat countless enemies, even turning the god Atlas into a mountain. Later, Perseus gave the Gorgonian to the goddess Athena, who fixed it to Zeus's shield, the Aegis. When Zeus or Athena carried the Aegis into battle, Medusa's head was said to cause the enemies of the Greeks to flee. Stories about Medusa's head far outnumber tales involving the Gorgon herself and may actually offer the greatest insight into how the Greeks viewed her. The Gorgonian's earliest use was as a symbol emblazoned on Greek battle armor and shields and later made its way into architecture. Many historians have interpreted it as an apotropaic symbol, meaning that it was used to ward off evil. Countless historians and experts have pondered the meaning and origins of this bizarre and frightening symbol. Sigmund Freud, the father of psychoanalysis, believed that Medusa symbolized castration, while others have suggested that the symbol was meant to invoke an octopus. In his 2000 treatise on Medusa, scholar Stephen Wilk drew connections between early art depictions of the Gorgonian and the transformation undergone by human corpses as they decompose. Eyes swell, cheeks bulge, the tongue protrudes, and in many cases, the hair rises and curls into coils, taking on a snake-like appearance. Wilk concludes that the image of the Gorgonian was originally not meant to depict a snake-haired woman, but instead the severed heads of Greek enemies. No doubt, they hoped that the glazed-over eyes of the fallen would petrify their enemies with fear as they charged into battle. Centuries removed from the ancient Greek battlefield, Medusa has become a significantly more complex symbol. In the modern era, she's often used to depict a powerful or dangerous woman, and not always in a positive light. Political cartoonists regularly employ images of the serpent-haired Gorgon to lampoon female politicians. Beginning in the 1960s, second-wave feminists sought to reclaim Medusa as an icon of female empowerment. 
In her famous 1976 article, The Laugh of Medusa, French feminist philosopher Hélène Sixou invoked the character while arguing that patriarchal societies have repressed women and taught them to be ashamed of their bodies and abilities, partially by denying them a voice. While advocating for women to reclaim their voices through writing, she said, You only have to look at the Medusa straight on to see her. She's not deadly. She's beautiful and laughing. Sixu's suggestion to look at the Medusa straight on is not mere parlance, but a reference to one of the Gorgonians' most striking and unique features. While most early Greek works of art depict their subjects in profile, the Gorgonian is almost exclusively depicted staring, facing outward, looking straight at the viewer. Whether this is meant to invoke a severed head on a Greek shield, or to capture the Gorgon's petrifying glare, the result is arresting. Medusa stares outward, capturing the viewer in her unyielding gaze, daring them to look inward and see what she sees. Thanks for listening to Mythical Monsters. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Mythical Monsters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Mythical Monsters on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythical Monsters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Mythical Monsters was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Carly Madden. This episode of Mythical Monsters was written by Andrew Kelleher, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 